You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are still in 1 Samuel. We just left David as he was getting ready to uh, basically kill a bunch of people. Kill everyone. Because they didn't feed him. <laughs> a, a, a typical teenage boy coming I mean, home. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there are times. I mean, I know when I'm hungry, I feel that way. Like, like, so. Yeah, yeah. A little overreaction. But, you know, a- Abigail... Um, she she's smart. She she's uh, beautiful. She's discerning, and she's going to head off trouble at the path at the past. Sorry, uh, nip she, it in the bud. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so you know, David uh, has is being approached by her, and we've just heard what he's thinking. Again, that unusual parallel with David and Saul, where we get to hear what David's thinking. So rare, where we have it all the time with Saul, but we've also seen Saul's words coming out of David's mouth. And so we kind of have to wonder what's going on here. And this is the beauty of the story. Uh, we're going to see a lot of role reversals, and we're going to see how, uh, how the writer is just so adept at, at showing motivation and, and the reason why people do things with very simple techniques. And I, I'm really just shocked that we aren't, we aren't studying this more often in church because it's a great story. So um, David follows uh, you know he makes the oath may god do to um do so to the enemies of david and more also if by moving i leave so much as one man all of whom belong to him so uh there's two ways to re- read this like i said it is an oath uh one is that david is trying to bind god to an obligation to kill everyone that david didn't get around to killing mm-hmm. uh you know proper use of his faith uh and yeah, that's always a good idea to try to manipulate God into something. Oh, yeah, it will. And again, we're reminded right back of Saul and some other TV preachers. But anyway, remember in chapter uh, 20, verse 15, Jonathan had promised God would cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So David could possibly just be saying, hey, this is what you promised me. So evidently, this is how it's going to work out. The second way is... David saying God would kill him, David himself, if David failed to kill everyone. So either way, David is somehow trying to unite God with his bloodlust that has overtaken him. And either way, he's kind of being a jerk about it. He he really is. And I don't think we can get around that. I don't think we can bypass them. And, you know, the the fact that that David is trying to manipulate God should bother us. This is not something we should celebrate. This is, again, this is what happened, not what should happen. Right. So um, in verse 23, we're told, When Abigail saw David, she hurried to get down from her donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. So we have another hint at Abigail's destiny because this echoes Genesis 24, 62 through 67. And if you remember, Eleazar had gone to go get Isaac a wife, and he went and found Rebecca, and she's escorted Eleazar at this point the unnamed servant, just like um, Abigail has had the unnamed servants with her. And when Rebecca 
sees Isaac from afar, she falls from her camel and and this is their their meeting. So we've got a you know, just just a little hint in this little bit of foreshadowing mm-hmm. that the, the author is just playing off of. Now, her speech is phenomenal. There's some <laughs> really funny stuff said in here. It's it's great. It is the longest speech from a single woman recorded in the Bible. It's 150 words, 53 words in Hebrew. Uh, Deborah's song is longer, but we also have Barack and the chorus coming in. So we've got several voices. So this is the, the longest single speech from a woman. And she begins with, she falls at his feet and says, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So she begins the address by claiming all the responsibility for something she obviously had nothing to do with it. This writer was very clear. She did not create the situation. She did not respond to the situation. She she makes this magnificent gesture, you know, and this is in a time of a highly maligned patriarchy. And she basically says, I'm the one with the ability to, to change this. That mm. I'm the one with the power here. And that's the, the theme underneath this, this series of words that she spills out. Very proper, aligns to all the social etiquette and expectations of a woman of her day, but with a lot of punch behind mm-hmm. that properness. So she says, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. So she's calling herself his servant. Um, This is the proper deference to a king as opposed to Nabal. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Mm -hmm. Um, She's really, you know, kind of easing that wounded ego of David where Nabal had called him nothing more than a runaway slave. So verse 25, she says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. N- N- now, is that also son of Bial, Bial there? Uh, yes. Okay. It, it is. I'm just curious. I don't mm-hmm. know why I find this theme so interesting. Oh. I'm just, I'm really, the phrase is just really interesting. So, anyway, go ahead. Well, and, and as we've discussed before, it's got some significant theological ramifications. And if we think of God having sons, then why don't we, why would we reject the idea that evil can have sons? Yeah. Well, and I find it that, you know, there's this idea of worthlessness and foolishness. Mm-hmm. with it and so anyway that there's it's, a there's something there that i've been there, something about this phrase i've just been trying to track down i'm probably annoying the listeners every time <laughs> i ask this but i'm just curious about how it's used where it's used and i, I probably need to do more independent study instead of wasting all of our <laughs> our recording time. well what, what's interesting about it is that the translators typically don't translate it you do I, have to go back to the kjv to find it yeah and and i find it really interesting like how like how you get to just worthless from son of Bleal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it, that's so innocuous. It seems so different that I can't understand. I, I don't, it just doesn't make sense to me why it would be so different. Um, I, I don't know. So, well, it's, it's one of those translation uh, choices that, again, I, I, I think we've, I think we think the, the reader sometimes is stupid. And I think we don't realize that they can understand complex concepts if we just present them and mm-hmm, we present them mm-hmm. consistently and Be- present them well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if, I think if your if your audience is not able to get the complex, I mean, now granted there are some people who just are not going to get certain <laughs> things, but I do think it says more about the presenter than it does about the audience. Exactly. If they're not understanding the complex material, well, the, I mean, you can take that for what it's worth, but that's just my <laughs> observation about life. Well, and it, it's, it does provide that, that wonderful, rich contrast of, you know, what it is to be a member of God's covenant community 
and everyone, you know, everyone who might be a son or daughter of Leal. And, you know, and there's there's part of me that does wonder, and I'm going really far afield here, so just stop me if, if you think we need to save this for later. You're but making I, my I notes go further, so. <laughs> Fair enough. But no, I keep thinking about how there is um, the idea of of Satan is understood in the New Testament. It's a fairly new idea, mm-hmm. really, whenever you get down to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and before, I, I really feel like it might be kind of this influence of this dualistic mindset that we get, that we try to, like, obscure some of these things like because Blial was considered one of the the chief like rebel angels mm-hmm. in, you know in a lot of the second temple literature yeah. and uh from what i understand from miriam mm-hmm. if i if i if i follow dr brand's <laughs> podcast correctly <laughs> that he was one of the, the the big players in this divine rebel group and mm-hmm. And we always think of it, there's god and there's satan and there's not anybody else there's not this idea of this of, for lack of a better term, this evolution of the divine rebel character that we kind of, it seems like our translations, it's almost like it's an attempt to obscure that. Right. And so I, that, I wonder if that's why it bothers me so much. So I, it, 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 there is, uh, there is this very, um, the, the obscuring of the evil is a huge issue. And I don't want to say so much within the Bible, but definitely uh, within, uh, within society. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what, who was it that said one of the, the greatest feats that Satan ever pulled off was convince people he doesn't exist? Yeah. yeah. And so I... Well, I just... Well, it's not so much the obscuring of, of evil and evil entities. I think it's the... It's it's almost like there's an obscuring of the idea that there could be more than one, like, you know, a, a leader in the devil... Army right or whatever how are you want I, I mean and i still realize that's that really falls short of what i'm trying to say but it it's that there's there's more than one like well-known demonic figure who's kind of a leader in the the armies of evil or something like that absolutely that was definitely part of second temple lit and i think we can also you know we can go back to the discussion last week where we were talking about the the trees in the garden where you know it's like we believe there's almost only two options, you know, they could only yeah, eat. Yeah, and, yeah. And we boil this down into simplistic terms. And, you know, another name for Belial is Beliar. And um, so, uh, Paul talks about him in Second Corinthians. So, okay. you know, so this is not something that was foreign to the New Testament. Is it, well, and is that, is that more of a, is that more of a, like a transliteration type of yes. thing within the Greek and the Hebrew? Yes. Okay. And so, it, and it, so it does most of the time, and I, I don't have time to look up all of the, um, all the uh, different very tra- various translations, but uh, you know it doesn't get watered down and it doesn't get obscured in in the New Testament the way it does in the Old Testament, which is another interesting translation choice that but, I don't. But, and so yeah, but I just I, yeah, but to go from <laughs> son of Bleal to worthless, I mean I get that I get that it's an idiom, mm-hmm. but I also think that's it's very far. Away. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Uh, idioms become that way through constant use, and sure. so we have to look at why was it constantly being used, mm. and uh, you know, it, and phrases do lose their their punch after so long of using them. I mean, I can remember certain words I would flinch away from when I was a kid because oh no, it's a dirty word, and now it's like whatever. Well, <laughs> yeah, know? there's that. And there, well, and there's other there's other phrases that that get used and you're like 
oh, wait, if you really break that down, what are you actually saying there? Yeah, most of dad's phrases. Well, in some of grandma's. <laughs> yeah, I know. So anyway. Um, so, okay, we're going to leave the family history behind on that one. So let me just start over with that verse because it's a really great verse. We're in verse 25. So, sorry, no, because, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted right before Abigail said the really funny thing. Go ahead. Yeah, so let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For his name is, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and his folly is with him. So I mean, she she's like, look, the guy's an idiot. He even comes with a warning label. What else do you expect from him? I'm sure his parents were very lovely people. <laughs> Love their kids. I it's definitely um indefinitely present there in the names. But go back to chapter 24 and verse 14, when David comes out to Saul and they're having that exchange outside the cave. And David tells um, Saul, after whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Abigail's using the same line of reasoning on David that David used on Saul. Yeah, it, it's the exact same technique. Basically, this behavior is beneath you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kings don't bother themselves with dead dogs, fleas, or fools. And petty insults it, from from, from people who don't know any better. Exactly. And, and the, what I love about it, she does it in such a way that David is inspired by her words, not condemned. Mm-hmm. And she she manages to remind him, hey, to keep pursuing him and to do anything against him is beneath you. It's not in keeping with your character. It's not in keeping with what you yourself have said you believe is true. Now, does she know about the story by the, at the cave? Who knows? Uh, it could have gotten back to her. Uh, chances are she didn't, though. So she says in verse 25, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent out. So, hey. If you would have talked to me first. It wouldn't have been an issue. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I'm the person who controls things here. I'm the one who gets them done. And I would have been more than happy to help. And I could have, I could have helped. You just, you know, you talk to the wrong person. Not saying it's your fault, but, you know, it's kind of your fault. Um, so uh, it, it was, she's, she's doing really wonderful things with a speech here. Verse 26. Now then, my Lord. As the Lord lives, notice the counter oath there, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nival. So basically, here's the counter oath. A counter oath undoes the first oath. We saw this with Jonathan when when Saul made the stupid oath, just like David just made the stupid oath, and the people returned an oath for an oath so the two kind of canceled each other out and what what i love about the the story the this parallel you know when you talk about saul's foolish oath you almost have to always go back to jephthah and his foolish oath Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so there was no one to speak on behalf of his daughter and so she dies jonathan the people ransom him and he lives and it took the weight of all of the people to, to save Jonathan's life. Mm-hmm. And now here's a woman, and she's the one who's going to save an entire city, not just one person. So we have that wonderful reversal of not just a single person being saved by a city. Now we have a city being saved mm-hmm. 
or an encampment being saved by a single person and a woman to boot. <clears throat> yeah, that's that is interesting, and I and I do like the the flip there where she says says my husband's an idiot, mm-hmm. but if you're going to kill a whole city on his behalf, you're, you're an, an idiot. idiot. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be uh, you will be his nabal, and and yeah. that's. She and so she's not backing away from the truth, and that's the other thing I love about this because she she's setting it up, and she's setting it up in a way that he has to agree with her. You know, there's a sales technique. You, you know, you get three yeses to to inconsequential questions, and then you ask the one of significance, and the person will almost automatically answer yes the fourth time. Right. So she's she's using almost a psychological trick uh, to get David to to see her way of thinking. And so she's, she's continues in verse 27. And now let this present to you, that your servant has brought my Lord be given to the young men that follow my Lord. Okay. So we've set up our argument. Now it's time to move on. We have a new action. I'm not going to let you sit here and stew. Remember you're the king as a king, your business is preserving life. It's time to feed the boys. And so and I kind of had this picture of Mimi when we were, um, our, our grandmother telling grandpa, come on, hon, now we got to get this done. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like, here's the shift. We, we've got to get focused on what needs to be done. Right. So verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord certainly, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. So Abigail knows that David's the rightful king. Somewhere along the line, the secret anointing of David has been made public knowledge. Everyone knows who the next king is going to be. We're going to see that in the conversations as they continue. Mm-hmm. Nobody's unaware. Uh, this means also, too, Nabal knew exactly who he was talking to. Sure. So he was not, uh, not just David, you know, the kid that ran down the streets in the town he grew up, but he knew who he was destined to be. Now, she says that she, David's going to have an, a sure house. This is a lasting dynasty, a legacy. It's not going to be fleeting. What's Saul been begging David to do? Don't cut off my house. Don't destroy my name. Make sure my kids live because we can't be forgotten. And she's telling David, you're going to have this. Because what's the difference between a judge and a king? A king has an heir. A judge is appointed within their lifetime after they're dead. There, you know, you go on. There, there's no continuation of that quote-unquote rule. Whenever you have a king, now you have to have an heir, and your your reign as a king and not just a a judge or a, a ruling warlord is only established when the son takes the throne, not just the man himself taking the throne. So she's saying that's what's going to happen, and it's because he fights the Lord's battles. You know, unlike Saul, who slaughters priest. Mm. So she's setting up a very nice contrast. Verse 29, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord, your God, and the lives of your enemies shall sling out from sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So she, (laughs) and we know he knows how slings work. Exactly. She reminds him his defense is in the Lord. He is being cared for. By God, it, it can't be uh, anything of his own making. And yes, and she pulls that wonderful metaphor. She, this is who you are. You're the giant killer. Mm. Who are you do? You know, who are you messing with a fool? Why are you doing this? Right. And so you know, she's allowing him to see who he is versus who he's being tempted to be. 
Right. And he cannot be Saul. We need him to be something uh, different. And so you see the wisdom and the poetry in her words that you just don't get with a lot of speeches from women in the Bible. I mean, we, we've got the songs, of course, but in the narratives, we don't see this kind of shrewdness uh, very often. And I love it. So verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed your prin- you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for the having shed the blood without cause or, f- or for my Lord working salvation for himself. So she knows the prophecies about David. She, she knows what's been said about him. Uh, and what's really interesting, we don't. We only have one prophecy at this point, mm-hmm. which is Hannah's. So she may have known that one. I mean, that would have been very um, expected for the women at that time to know the prophecies of other women. They would have been handed around at the watering well. Uh, maybe Samuel made some other uh, public declarations. We're not told. It's possible that Saul himself may have actually prophesied about David's reign. I mean, when he's ranting, what you know, the ESV says, ranting in his own house, or mm-hmm. whenever he was laid out naked at Ramah. Um, but she's also speaking her own divine decrees. She, she's putting her insight into the message. And she, she includes this little stinger at the end. David will only enjoy this protection if he has a clear conscience. And that's going to require two different things from him. And so he shouldn't spill blood without cause. Mm-hmm. So all of his battles need to be battles that God has commanded for a specific reason. And when we look at these battles and we look at the people God has called Israel to confront, we know there's specific reasons. We've talked about that previously. So I'm not going to go into all of that. But the second is that he would not work out salvation for himself. Now, the ESV does a good job on translating here. Um, The word is Yasha, which is uh, the basis of Yeshua. Uh, Many translations render this actually as vengeance or to avenge or. Uh, victory, uh, they, they lose that aspect of the salvation um, declaration here. You said in the ESV it doesn't say vengeance? Because it uh, says it, it in my uh, ESV. It... Hold on. What, what verse are we uh, in? <laughs> we are in verse 31. Uh, without cause for my Lord taking vengeance himself. So is that... Okay, or without cause or the Lord working salvation himself. Is, is what that what it says, says in yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, and so now I can kind of play a lot of theology on that. I can see why the ESV would render it working, not working salvation for yourself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We we have to look at the the ESV translation committee is Calvinistic in their viewpoint. So uh, the idea that anyone, I'm not saying that's a bad translation no, either. I mean, no. of course, I don't speak Hebrew, or, right, or read it for that matter. It's I. I really, because like I said, the word is Yasha. So, and like I said, Yeshua, Jesus, we, we, that's the basis of that. Um, and so I, 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 I think this is a good translation. Um, I, I think that even though the translation committee is showing their, their bias here, I think this is actually not so much bias as just proper translation. Yeah. So what's the... Um, well, that's what I'm trying to find it here. Gotta remember how my numbers go. So. One, two. <laughs> and my Lord, uh, sorry, and that the Lord sought redress with His own hands. Okay. Yeah. I think from from what I read on this, that this could be an idiom that does have that vengeance kind of um, 
connotation to it. But when you think about salvation, there is that vengeance kind of connotation to to salvation when you realize we've been bought with a price mm. from the powers from Ben Belial, uh, you know, <laughs> that that we are no longer beholden uh, to an enemy that tried to oppress us, and God is going to triumph over those enemies that tried to hurt the, the, his children. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the thing, too, to remember is we're supposed to be contrasting with Saul, and Saul was almost compulsively compelled to, to try to work out salvation for himself. Yeah, yeah, he, that makes, yeah. He didn't have any faith. He was constantly disobeying and trying to overstep those bounds to be able to to hold on to that throne and maintain that that image. And so David's David's reign has to be different. And how is it different? By walking in faith and obedience and doing what God tells him to do, even whenever it doesn't make sense to him. And I, I think that's one of the things sometimes we as Christians have a hard time dealing with. Uh, I know I do when God tells us to do things that don't make sense to us because we're supposed to be rational, reasonable creatures. And it would make sense to keep the livestock alive. It would make sense to not kill everyone. Mm -hmm. And that was not the command. The the command was to do exactly what God said for Saul to do specifically with uh, King Agag and his crew. So verse 30, I, I, I love this. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So this is about as brazen as it gets. She, she knows exactly what she's saying here. She's already thrown her husband under the bus. He's nobody. He has no power. He's of no consequence. And so when, when the Lord has dealt well with you and removed your enemies from the face of the earth, pretty much is what she's saying, you need to remember me. Mm-hmm. And by calling David my Lord, that phrase in the right context, in many contexts in the Bible, actually means my husband. And she's called him that 14 times in this speech. Mm-hmm. And so she's, our, she's planting that seed deep in his head. And, and plus, the writer has already been foreshadowing what's going to happen. And you know, she has no problem asking for what she wants, which, you know, very biblical. You have not because you ask not. And so... Uh, the, the really interesting element is what she's saying beyond marry me. Yeah. She's saying, if you're faithful to God, then it's going to mean good things to me. Yeah. And how true is that? When our leadership is faithful to God, then good things happen for those under his care. And so and we can talk, you know, that could be politics, that could be church leadership, that could be a teacher at school. It could it, if you're in charge of people, your faithfulness, your level of faithfulness impacts the well-being of people under your care. And I think so often we forget that that's a huge component of being a leader. And if you if that means nothing to a leader, then they don't need to be in leadership. Because mm-hmm. Saul obviously did not have that element of compassion. So verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Verse 33, blessed be your uh, discretion, blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So thank you for keeping me from being Saul. Thank you for being who God has said you are. Thank you for reminding me of who I am. Uh, He's repeating Abigail's words back to her, just as she was kind of repeating his words back to him. And the writer's really showing us how these two, they're such a good fit. 
they complement each other well. They understand how the mind of the other one works. And, you know, the, the word that David uses to describe discretion, it's used 13 times in the Bible, and it can be, it can be translated as taste or judgment, which is really interesting because in Exodus 16.31, it's used to describe the flavor of manna specifically. Okay. So now in 1 Samuel 21, 14, it's used to describe David hiding his judgment whenever he is uh, pretended to be mad before the king of Gath. So in Proverbs 1, 19, 16, David uses this word to when God teaches good judgment. But and in Proverbs 11, I'm sorry, Psalms 119. In Proverbs 11:22, a woman without discernment or discretion is like a gold ring in the snout of a pig. But it's also found in the superscription of Psalm 34, and we just talked about that not too long ago. And remember, that was the story where David was pretending to be mad that was the reason why David wrote that. But it's also saying at Rosh Kadesh because Rosh Kadesh is a holiday celebrating women, mm-hmm. and specifically women who were able to discern time mm-hmm. at Sinai, and you'll have to go back to the episode to get all of that. Um, but it's also about experiencing the beauty and the goodness in, in God's creation. Taste and see God is good mm-hmm. is in that, um, in that psalm. And so we've got this, this really great web of, of meaning and intent that we can see it running throughout these chapters of Samuel that we've covered, where David's whole life is beginning to, to take shape not just within the, the, the idea of politics, but the people within his life are influencing how he perceives the world. And we're seeing how God is bringing the right people in, and there's the right amount of tribulation. But then people who are, who are choosing to align with him are also helping him see the world in a way that maybe he hadn't seen before. Mm. And I love it because, I mean, there's so much depth in the, in the minutia. So anyway, verse 34, for surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by, by morning, there had not been one left to Nabal so much as one male. So this is why we love David. When he is confronted and you, you know that he sees what he's doing wrong, he accepts the correction. And I don't know, and maybe we'll find one as we go through, but to my knowledge at this particular point in time, I don't know of any situation where David was confronted and someone said, hey, this is where you did wrong, that David didn't respond with repentance, contrition. Mm -hmm. And then he even goes on to praise God that God cared enough to actually correct him. And so... The fact that David can do that, that's why he's worthy to be king. Right. So I, 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 I want to kind of pause a little bit further on this because David not only is rejoicing that God corrected him, he's rejoicing specifically that a woman corrected him. Mm-hmm. Uh, men at this time really weren't big on women correcting them at all, let alone a king. And, and I love the fact that there's no shame and pride doesn't get in his way and that he will exalt her even as he receives the correction. 
And so I think that maybe one of the many reasons why churches kind of bypass this, because you really can't just read what's on the page and teach it in a very, in a, any kind of depth without undermining some of the other teachings about women, Mm -hmm, because how dare a woman correct leadership, particularly male leadership. And yet here's David, the King of Israel, God's Messiah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. You, you, you are so wise. Uh, so I, I have to, to love this. And Rachel Adelman, um, I, I've mentioned her before on some of our episodes. She wrote The Feminine Ruse. Mm-hmm. Um, such a great book. Uh, she actually makes the statement that not only did we not hear it from the pulpit, that this is an underread uh, piece of, uh, of the Bible. Right. And that there's just a handful of scholarly articles uh, concerning this passage. And so. <laughs> All right. Well, sounds like we got a, somebody working outside with the chainsaw. So uh, let's take a break real quick. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so sorry about that. We, if you uh, are watching on YouTube, you probably saw a little jump there. Uh, we, <laughs> we had, I forgot we had a guy coming to take some trees out of the front today and he. We just started to work. <laughs> we're in Oklahoma. When you hear chainsaws, you run. Uh, we're close enough to Texas to make that a priority. Anyway, uh, no. <laughs> what were you saying? Let's get back to what we were talking about. Okay, fine. Um, yeah, I was talking about how Edelman, uh, basically, she noted that there's just like a handful of scholarly articles on this uh, this passage. It is not a passage that that is... Um, studied a lot and so we're not you know we're not just saying hey we had a a faulty kind of upbringing with this this seems to be um yeah yeah exactly so verse 35 then david received from her hand what she had brought him and he said go up in peace to your house see i have obeyed your voice and i have given granted your position uh your petition Uh, so david is specifically saying I have obeyed you. I have obeyed a woman. Oh my goodness, how scandalous is that? <laughs> um, the word he uses here is actually shma. And if you know anything about Hebrew... I've heard, I've listened. <laughs> exactly. And not just, not just that the sound has entered your ear, it's that you have listened and obeyed. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, this is super high praise that he, he's giving to her. And when... We are being told so often this is such a patriarchal society. Women are of no value. And this is David, the, the, the foreshadowing of the Messiah who's come, uh, is to come. Then this has some amazing connotations. Uh, I have granted your petition. Literally, I have lifted up your face. And so we find the same uh, wording in Genesis 19.21 when the angel um, talks to Lot and when Lot says, hey, I, I want to go to Zoar, the, the little town here, the angel says, I've lifted up your face. Job 42.89, God um, is, is talking concerning Job's prayer for his friends. So basically, th- this way of this phrase is the strongest way of saying, I'm going to do exactly what you asked me to do. Yeah. There, there, there's not a much more emphatic way to say that. So. Verse 36, this is where the story really takes off. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning light. So (laughs) a couple of things going on. He's having a feast like a king. This kind of further um, 
establishes the idea that Naval may have thought that he was more fitting to be a king than David. Mm-hmm. And he, he had enough food in his house. And I thought this was an interesting thing to think about. He had enough food in his house to have a feast like a king, despite the fact that Abigail just took off with. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of the things I was thinking of. Like, he, yeah, she just gave him a huge portion of food and there's still enough to have a huge feast. So oh. he wasn't hurting for any of the stuff that David asked for. Uh, yeah. And which makes his, his stinginess all the more appalling. And, you know, the other thing you notice in, in the text specifically, um, I remember many times being told that uh, Boaz was not drunk, that he was just really happy. Right. But the text specifically confirms here in this verse, he had a merry heart for he was drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, it confirms the idiom. Yeah. You can't get around it. So. The other thing that stood out to me is she's smart enough not to pick a fight with a drunk and a fool. Hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, if, if you spend any time in, in the college crowds or uh, hanging out with biker bars, as I've done in previous lifetimes, I, this is something you should know. Just if somebody's drunk and a fool, you just save your words. And so she waits and she, she picks her moment, which, you know, we shouldn't expect anything less of her. So verse 37 in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Naval, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. So, um, interesting phrasing. Oh wow. Um, okay, so she starts. She she waits until he sobers up. The wine goes out of him. Remember the 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 play on words we talked about earlier. The two skins of wine that she brought to. To David, that they were built on the same stem, the the Nun, the Bet, and the Lamed, the or in in B L. Uh, the words are totally connected. So as as wine was going to flow out of the skins to provide sustenance and nourishment and merriment for David's men, now wine has gone out of Naval. So his wife told him these things. We know what those are. We're smart, and and his heart died within him there's some debate on what this means we we really you know this is not a medical book and right. there's so much about the human condition that is not known uh he's not dead at this point he he becomes immobilized and that's he's as stone now remember what she told david she says anyone who opposes you their life will go out of them as a stone from a sling so we're seeing this, this connection. God is literally enacting what she had said to David. Uh, so we have- well, well, and we also think of, uh, you know, the, the heart also in the language here is going to also be uh, synonymous with like a mind. Mm-hmm. So could be he lost his mind, his mind. So to me, I think I'm thinking of a stroke. That's exactly, I, I, that's my, uh, that's what I think several other people have speculated. That's what it is. And I think it makes, there's good reason to think that, especially as we progress. Uh, we just can't say that, you know, that's exactly what the Bible's saying because the Bible doesn't have that vocabulary. Right. And so, you know, you, you recognize limitations. But what, what is so fun about this is... Is it fun? This is... <laughs> I was married to a fool once upon a time. <laughs> It's fun uh, because, you know, God actually, he's moving on her behalf, but is he? And that's the debate because, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, she killed him. She actually was the one who killed him. Now, um, a lot. 
That was my curiosity, is that there is any speculation on that, because it almost sounds like that. <laughs> it's very premeditated, because, I mean, it, it seems. It, it sounds, I mean, if you listen to her speech, basically, <laughs> basically, she's like, okay, here's the deal. You, you can't be the one to kill this guy. Right. Because but nothing's you, stopping me. <laughs> but if you, because, I mean, because you kind of wonder, it's like, if she, if, if David were to be the one to kill him, and then she went off to marry him, it would be like, well, David's just this guy who kills and takes what he wants. Exactly. And then, but she's like, well, hold on. <laughs> I, I can, I got this covered. But at the same time, she, she admonished David not to work out salvation with his own hand. And so, you know, is it not okay for David to do that, but it's okay for her? I, so you got to kind of wonder, is she a hypocrite or not? Is really what it boils down to. Because, and we're not told. I, I think the text is. Well, I don't int- think it's even necessarily a hypocrite or not. It's kind of like you—you you can't be seen as the one to dispatch this guy. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, that's—that's that's a way that could be read. Now, of course, we're not told if she does actually poison him. If she did, that's how <laughs> I would read it. If we want to take the text for what it says, then mm-hmm. she's just kind of going. Well, I guess yeah. that worked out. Well, and the the other speculation is: Did she know that he had a pre-existing condition that? She just decided to like just goading good and get him stirred up over it that, you know, how dare she? Yeah, because I mean, if she if she did tell him everything that she told David, she basically told her husband, hey, I proposed to this future king. He's cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's in. What does she? Yeah. What does she she tell him? And and that's the thing. It's like I, I, I these are the questions we have to ask. And the thing is, it's not an instantaneous death. Um. And so we're told in verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And that's part of the debate is because Abigail tells Nabal the words that, that turn him to stone, but God is the one who, who strikes him dead. Mm. So how much, you know, how much was she playing in? Did she, did she just, like I said, I, I think possibly what happened, she told him, you know, my speculation, and I, I got to be clear about that. I think she knew exactly how to push his buttons, and I think she just got him so mad that he did have a stroke, and then finally God took him out. But also that 10 days, mm-hmm. and that's 10 days David wasn't there. Right. That's 10 days where David is removed from the situation. Yep. And here's the thing. If she had wanted him dead, like to truly kill him, to be an active participant of that, well, the guy is as a stone during those 10 days, what would have stopped her? Right. Right. So um, I, I, I think she, she did push his buttons, uh, but I don't think she necessarily uh, was premeditating his death. Um, but again, the, the text kind of leaves you there to, to uh, wonder. And we, we can also add into this the factor that she is a prophetess. She is identified as a prophetess according to almost every ancient t- tradition. She could have just been prophesying what she knew was going to happen to her husband in that role. Fair enough. And so um, Adelman, she actually says that the bloodless death of Nabal is actually the evidence of the, that, that God was the one who did it. And the fact that no blood was spilled and nobody had to bear a blood guilt gotcha. was, was very significant. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, that would make sense. And again, you know, it's always good to side with the text. Yeah, and well, and, and what you wind up there is this wonderful uh, contrast between the, the, the deaths that are inverted, uh, averted, 
uh, because, you know, David was going to strike everyone down with a sword and the death that's enacted. And, you know, one is bloody and brutal and the other one is without all the gore. And so we're, we're being shown that this is still part of God's will. It's not something that, that David or, or um, Abigail have manipulated into being. Right. And, and, yeah, and, and it's a troubling thing to appreciate this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time not laughing. But at the same time, this is a woman who's being delivered from a fool of a husband. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And God is dealing well with this woman. And... I love the fact that God is stepping in and, you know, maybe this is another reason the story is avoided. Uh, I, I can't see it going well in many of the churches to, to get up and preach to women, hey, if your husband's full, don't worry, God's got, it, got you covered. <laughs> uh, I don't think that happens too often, by the way, but it does happen, um, as obviously presented in the text. So, uh, yeah, it's... Like I said, it's a great story because I think there's a lot of hope in there. That and it's not just a it's not just a fairy tale because David doesn't swoop in to save Abigail. Sure, he was actually she was going to be the, part of the collateral damage. She saves herself. I mean, you know, she does it through obedience with, with to God, and she's in the role of a prophetess. But she chose to become an active participant in working out salvation with God, not on her own, though. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, this I'm amused by the story. <laughs> well, no, there's lots of interesting things about it, and it, there is. I mean, I don't know. I I'm probably not as amused as you are, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, a little dark humor here. I, but you know, the Bible's got lots of dark humor. Um, when David heard that Naval was dead, he said, "Blessed be the Lord who has uh, avenged the insult I received at the hand of Naval and kept back his servant from the wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Naval on his he- own head." So David's seeing this as God's direct punishment. And he's not only seeing it as God's direct punishment of Naval for punishment against Naval on Naval, he's also seeing it as God's blessing to David in this. And you know, I know that we are live in a time where Christianity and faith is supposed to be all rainbows and butterflies, and God loves everyone, and nobody's ever going to be hurt by the love of God. Um, Let's just be honest about the fact that sometimes when people who are trying to hurt us get stopped by God, it hurts them. Uh, And so it can be a huge blessing for us whenever God steps in to protect his children. Mm -hmm. And so that's not an awful thing because Naval chose to be a fool. All he had to do was go, hey, this guy is the anointed king of Israel. God has already specified this is who he is. Mm Instead, Naval decides to violate all the customs of his land and country, and he's very much acting like the men of a city we heard about not too long ago called Gibeah. And so he could have easily become uh, the husband of a woman who was brutalized in the same way the concubine was. Right. And so the fact that this does not happen, now we're starting to see the kingdom is moving forward and it's moving out of that dark time of the judges. and. It's it's a great picture when you realize the progression here. So, um, you know, we should not forget that Naval is presented as just a horrible, 
a horrible person throughout all of this. And so um, I am looking because I've talked a lot and I got lost in my notes. Well, <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. Well, I, 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 the, the story is interesting and I do find it funny that like as soon as David hears, he's like, well, guys, go tell her that uh, I guess we'll go on with that, with that marriage thing. Yeah. So. Well, and, and we've got we've we've got this whole situation where David recognizes who she is and what she's worth. Right. And remember when we go back to the story of Abraham and Sarah, part of the holdup there with the the uh, arrival of Isaac is that he never Abraham takes a really long time to to recognize that Sarah is his fitting bride. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in this passage we have the Abigail who is the mirror of David in almost every respect. I mean, she's the underestimated, overlooked, neglected wife of of this fool, and she, and as such, she's trapped by circumstances. Mm-hmm. In much the same way that um, David would have been trapped by circumstances, and you, and here she's got this staggering command of words that are not only brilliant, they're prophetic, and she will. Um, she uses these words to elevate her to a position that was beyond her own ability. Uh, she's, she's this really weird mixture of humility and pride that we see in David too. Sure. And I, I really, that's the reason why I really like her as a character, but there also comes this question of what if David had actually seen her as the fitting queen, because she's not the queen. She, she is a wife and she's honored and she's respected, but we're going to find out that she's, she's not the one who gets elevated to the, the highest pinnacle within the court. So, uh, you know, and David's going to have issues with women. That's just part of who David is. Yeah. Yeah. So first 38 B this is uh 38 B through 40. David, he remembers Abigail and he sends his servants back to get her and, and to secure her as his wife. That is the intent he makes, you know, there, there's no niceties about her. Just bring her back. And she's, she's a willing participant. I mean, when the servants get there, she bows before them and she declares that she will wash the feet of the servant that David sends. I mean, she, mm-hmm. again, that humility. Yeah. Well, is it that or is it kind of, well, compared to the last few years, this seems like a good proposition. <laughs> well, you know, it had to be. And um, that, that's the thing because she had been, if you're ever stuck in a room with a fool for five minutes, it's horrible. Now imagine living with one for five years and one who has total control over your life. But the fact that she is willing to do this and you got to remember her husband's the richest guy around mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's feasting like a king. So he's probably very well respected in the community, at least on some level. And she, she's saying it, it, I don't have to hang on to the trappings of all of this. Right. So in verse 40, 42, she, um, she hurries to mount the donkey and five women who serve her follow on foot, which is kind of an interesting contrast. She's willing to wash the feet of David's servants but she still has five servants who come with her. And so again, like I said, that, that mixture of humility and pride um, that we see in her, she, she becomes his wife and she's the only wife that David has that we're told how she feels about marrying David. Yeah. You know, she, she's, she's eager. She, she's prepared to go with them. And it sounds like, you know, the guy showed up and she's like, grab the bags, girls, you know, we're packed, you know, it, she was ready to go. And of course, it's a love story that ends, you know, <laughs> not great. You know, yeah. David also took 
Ahinoam of Jezreel. <laughs> and, <laughs> and both of them because of, because of his, uh, uh, became his wives. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah. Uh, well, and, and that's the thing. And if you notice the order there, this is one of the reasons why we know she was not the, the first wife or the, the queen because she's not the first woman mentioned. And so, uh, and of course, you know, he's had Michael back home who isn't around anymore. And what I found to be interesting, because I had not considered this. Now, we talked about, uh, you know, this is Nabal's from Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from the tribe that founded Bethlehem, that he was possibly a distant relative. So Bergen suggests that this might be a Leverite marriage. And so David would have been functioning as the kinsman redeemer. Interesting. Within, uh, I hadn't considered that. Never really thought about it. And as both of them being members of the tribe of Judah, David would have qualified. And, you know, and usually it was the closest male relative, but there were exceptions. So the only child accredited to, to David and Abigail is um, never a contender for the throne. Not okay. once is he, is he presented as someone who might inherit, and, which is fitting if this is a Leverite marriage because the child would not be considered David's, the child would be considered Nabal's. Oh. Exactly. So we also, if you notice, as we read through this- Can angel, you imagine growing up with that though, like- you know, I was, you know, I could have been a son of David, but I get to be the son of the fool. Right. And it's like. Maybe this is why he wasn't at all the parties. I, yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it, that would be an interesting. by that much. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> but when we read through the, the other accounts where anywhere Abigail's mentioned, she is called the wife of Nabal. She's not called, I mean, she's married to David, but then we always have that little addition there so we sure. know that this is where she originated um ahinoam uh, noam ahinoam sorry I, this ahinoam is, that's uh, a hard name da, 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 I, I keep on okay never mind. Uh, i don't know why that does it to my brain uh, i couldn't tell you this is the same <laughs> this is the same name as one of saul's wives because of the timeline and the circumstances it's probably not the same woman uh, probably a different person. She's always mentioned first, uh, and this means that she was married before Abigail, and she's going to be the mother of Amnon. So we're going to find him uh, later on in the story, troubling story, but that's uh, what we know about her. We find out in verse 44 that Saul has given Michael to a guy named Halti, the son of Laish of Gelim. A wonderful name there. Some of the commentators read that verse to mean that Saul forced Michael to divorce David. Doesn't say that. Uh, The text doesn't really support any kind of divorce. We don't know. Saul wasn't the best at keeping the rules when he was angry. Sure. Um, Later, David's going to demand that Michael be returned to him. And so uh, the fact that David still feels like he has a right to her as a wife means that even if there was a, a divorce under duress, it, it was meaningless because both parties had not agreed to, you know. Sure. It, the uh, rabbis claim that this guy, Palti, recognized that Michael was not really his wife and that Michael was still married to David. And so that in order to keep from sinning and uh, violating another man's wife, that every night when he came to bed, he'd put the sword in the bed between them and that way he never touched her. And it was fitting for, <laughs> right? And so, 
Well, I mean, that's just as ridiculous as the few times I have heard this all read through during a sermon or Bible story lesson, that the justification for David marrying Abigail was that his wife had been given to someone else, so it was okay for him to have another wife. Don't but you? we also leave off the fact that he also got a second <laughs> one right there. Don't you know, good Christian men don't get divorces. Uh, oh, it, they aren't Christians yet. Uh. <laughs> it, it's just the, I don't know. It, again, I, sometimes it's like, why bother? Yeah. You know, I, and I, I, granted you and I speculate a lot about things from now, from now and then, you know, just and think about like what people might be thinking or, or have different questions. And, but I really feel like that one's kind of stretching. Yeah, I, I, it probably was not in keeping. Now, here's, here's the reason why I don't think there was a divorce. Well, I, okay, good. I, yeah. I don't think there was either, but that's just me going, it's one, it's not in the text. Right. And that's two, a big one. <laughs> yeah. And, and two, I think that Saul did it to spite David. That's Absolutely. why I don't think there was a divorce, but go ahead. What do you got? Well, because in the Torah, if a man and woman divorce, uh, it's expected that they remarry. This is Bible, by the way. So when I say Torah, we're looking Genesis through Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. If a man and woman divorce, it's expected that they remarry. The one thing that is forbidden is for them to divorce a second time and remarry each other. That's an abomination. Yeah, I I hadn't considered that part of it. And But you're right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think David basically looked at this whole thing as Saul as an act of war in an attempt to try to humiliate mm-hmm. him said here yeah you can have her because Saul doesn't care about the women at all right David does some horrible things with the women in his life but there is a level of respect as we've just seen with Abigail and his speech to her and his treatment of her that Saul never attains and so yeah is David perfect absolutely not but we do see progress so before we move forward, uh, I want to do a real quick recap because I, I don't want us to forget this. At this point, David has a 600-man army. He has a prophet named Gad. He has a priest, Abathar. And now he has three wives. The most significant of this is he has Abigail. And the reason why this is Ab- uh, so important for him to be married to Abigail, he now has a woman who was married to the richest man in the country who had the ability to feast like a king after providing mm-hmm. his troops with food. He's he got a whole lot of sheep now. He's Even got more a, goats. Yes. He has just got the funding for his little uh, revolution. And he also, you know, bonus points, a prophetess for a wife. And so... David has what he needs to begin his royal court. But there's going to be a few little detours along the way. But he, as this is going along, he, he's, gaining, he's gaining clout. He's gaining influence. He, he's starting to get the reputation of a man who can be trusted. Uh, and, the, you know, there's a certain level of credibility that comes along when you've got the right people on your team. Yeah. Well, and I do kind of wonder, I mean, now that you mentioned that, it's kind of, you know, it seemed like he was... a overreacting a little bit whenever he was denied <laughs> the things that he asked for. Yes. So I'm curious about, um, did, was it possible that he kind of went into that, into that thinking, this is my shot mm-hmm. to, to get a one rich person on my side and that he was frustrated when his plan was foiled. 
I, I there I think there is definitely that at play. And not only, you know, would he expect like the hospitality due just a traveling stranger in the land, mm-hmm. if if Naval was a family member, he could have expected Naval to help him because, hey, we're blood, you know, the 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 idea. So I do think that there is that idea, uh, that that thought process within David. And you know, there's a danger in getting close to a dream where you think you got it all figured out and you think, uh, we just got to make this next step. We got to do this one more thing and it's all going to fall into place. And how many times do you get there and God's like, mm, we're going to hold up and we're going to hold up for an undisclosed amount of time. And you're going to have to wait until I supernaturally bring this into existence because you don't get to do it on your own. Right. Right. It, well, and, and again, that kind of even ties back into what we talked about before um, in other episodes about that failure of imagination mm-hmm. where David going in thinking, well, this is the way it's going to get done. And then when it doesn't get done that way, God's like, no, 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 no. Just <laughs> and basically uses Abigail to tell him, look, that's this is not how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just wait. Well, and to think about the, the fact that the salvation and I mean that salvation wise, as far as like like literally his troops needed to eat, mm-hmm. came through a woman who supposedly had no power. And you know, what an unexpected means of provision. Mm-hmm. And, and now this woman not, will continue to provide in, in new ways. And so, yeah, I, this incident is very pivotal because we are seeing how David's theology is being formed. Because what he learns here with Naval is actually going to... Um, play out again in chapter 26. And we began to see why it's so important. You have 24 with the cave incident mm-hmm. here with uh, Abigail and Naval, and then again with Saul and confronting him for the last time. Right. You've got to have these three, these three stories together so you can see how David is evolving and growing as a person. And so it's going to be interesting to get into that story and, and to see how they, they do play off each other. And so David, I, I don't think he would have gotten the understanding he did if God had not said, hold up, you can't just be a conceited jerk right. and, and expect me to honor you. Yep. And so uh, that, if that's your takeaway from the, for the episode. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Well, that seems like a good place to pause right at the end of the chapter. We very, ra- very rarely do that. Um, Worked well. Yeah. So, well, that's... Uh, that's been one of my favorite ones so far. There's a lot of interesting information in there. So it's a lot of fun to study. Yeah. I just wish there was more information. I I, I want to dig deeper. And, yeah. Uh, but academia's neglect ha- has left us here. Well, so. <laughs> of course, just blame everyone else. So I think that's what we yeah. learned not to do, right? Is that? Yeah. Uh, no, I like no. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Sure. So, <laughs> anyway, well, uh, everyone out there, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, hit us up on Raven Creek SC uh, on all the social media, RavenCreekSC.com, to be part of the conversation. And uh, in the meantime, we'll see you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.